Well, it's the Day of Atonement. I think we all knew that ahead of time. You don't look as chipper as usual, most of you, <clears throat> because we're afflicting our souls as God has told us to do back in Leviticus 23. This is a very solemn day, and I think we'll recognize the solemnity of it as we go on in the sermon. But I want to start in Ephesians 5. Uh, we began a series of sermons, oh, it's been months and months ago now, about marriage and how the feast days picture uh, the plan of God through marriage. And I didn't ever finish that. We got sidetracked on something else. So I want to briefly review it today and try to finish that <clears throat> to carry it all the way through all the holy days and show how uh, marriage fits that. I want to start, though, in Ephesians 5, go down to, he's, we're very familiar with this passage about husbands and wives and their relationship with one with another, but let's begin in verse 31. For this cause, that is, about marriage, shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So they are to start a new family, to begin a new beginning, to develop something from that relationship that has just come together in marriage. And then he makes a comment. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So what he is saying here is this dissertation he's just made about marriage is about Christ and the church, that the whole marriage relationship has to do with that, and that it is a great mystery. Not to us, I don't suppose marriage in our day and age today is that big a mystery, is it? Or is it? And do the implications of physical marriage here on the earth have something to do with a much bigger picture and the whole plan of God? Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that at the time of the resurrection, the mystery of God is revealed. So there is a great mystery that has to do with Christ and His marriage to the church with physical marriage and the mystery that will be revealed at the resurrection. So, physical marriage, the marriage to Christ, and the resurrection are all tied together, if you will. That being the case, should we begin to look deeper into how marriage might reflect the plan of God through the feast days? because the mystery is going to be revealed at the Feast of Trumpets. Now, in brief review, and I want to keep it fairly brief because I want to finish this today, not make 15 sermons out of it. I have something else for next week. But if you will recall, uh, we talked about the Passover and how ancient marriage, uh, the, the whole... What am I trying to say here? The panoply, or the, that's too big a word, the, the procedure from the time a young man set his heart on getting married until married. The whole procedure is laid out uh, in ancient Israel 
in history and how they actually went about marriage, planning it, proceeding with it, and consummating it. And we saw that they had a bride price that had to be brought. Remember the case of Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac, where Abraham sent a messenger, a servant, to seek out a wife. Isaac himself did not go to seek a wife, but the servant did. And once he was found, or once he found whom he was looking for, he brought a bride price, he brought a flask of wine, and a document, or an agreement for betrothal. And we saw how that fits what Christ did. The Passover itself pictures the sacrifice of Christ. We know we are bought with a price. We're redeemed by His blood. So, the price that He offered the bride-to-be, us, was His life. He offered his entire life. And it was not just in death, that was the case, yes, but he was resurrected and he offered even more after that. Not just his life to that point, but eternal life. And that is given at the time of the Feast of Trumpets when the mystery is revealed. So there is life in his blood. He died and gave up his life that we might live. So the price that he offered as a bride price was greater than any price ever offered any other time before or since. Now, Abraham's servant took gifts to the bride, perhaps to the family. Uh, I quoted several scriptures there. I didn't read them. 1 Peter 1.18, Acts 20.28 and so on, about how we're redeemed with His blood, and how, and so on. I think we went over those before. Uh, the, the wine, they had a flask of wine. Once they talked about the situation, and decided that this would indeed make a good match between the, father, the father's son and the bride-to-be, they drank wine to seal the deal. And Christ shed his blood, and it is through his blood that the deal can be sealed for us to be part of the kingdom of God. So he brought the bride price himself, he brought the wine, his blood, and then he brought the document. His word is the marriage proposal and contract. It is the document that we all live by. Because if there is to be a marriage, there have to be rules for that marriage. How it is to be conducted, uh, what is expected of each person, and simply how you live in a marriage. And that's what this is. Now, I want to go briefly with that in mind to uh, John 2 in the New Testament. We related this before to the Old Testament, but I, I see something here that I think really uh, catches the eye in considering the New Covenant marriage. Remember, there was a marriage in the Old Testament. Uh, the bride did not live according to the documents, and Christ wound up putting her away or divorcing her because of her uh, misuse and abuse and not living the way she should. But he is offering a new contract in the New Testament. And notice that 
The Father sent a servant out ahead of time in John 2, named John the Baptist. Well, I guess John 1 is where I want to be in that. He sent John the Baptist out and uh, to prepare the way for the groom to talk to prospective members of the bride. And that's what John the Baptist did. A voice cried in the wilderness, tried to get people's attention. We have someone coming who's important. You might want to marry him, was the implication as, it, as the story progressed. That's obviously what he was pointing toward. So he was sent, and then Christ came to him for baptism. Uh, he was, at that point, formally accepting the terms, the willingness to give his life totally to the bride-to-be. And baptism does reflect our willingness to give of ourselves entirely, totally, completely, and forever to God. So this is being played out. Someone came ahead, then someone came designated as the bridegroom, uh, who followed. <clears throat> he was baptized, and baptism and the Passover are tied pretty tightly together in symbolism anyway. Going down into the water is a symbol of death. We don't have to have our blood poured out, but that water and the washing of the water by the Word to cleanse us and prepare us for what is ahead certainly is there. And then notice, and this one I questioned for years, why didn't Christ heal some sick people for His first miracle? No, we know the marriage in Cana of Galilee where He turned much, much water into wine. And in turning that water into wine, He was bringing the flask of wine. Uh, not just a flask in this case, but buckets and barrels of wine. And it was in the context of a marriage feast. So right here, as the story of Christ begins to develop through John, all the elements that lead up to a marriage are listed right here in the first two, first three, four chapters of John. Uh, let's not leave out the document. Uh, Matthew 4.4, 4, Luke 4.4, 4, Deuteronomy 8.3, all talk about living by every word of God. So even though it's not mentioned here specifically at the beginning of John, it is mentioned at the beginning of Luke and at the beginning of Matthew, just as this story is introduced. We don't have the whole story all in one place in the Bible. We have to go here and there to piece the whole thing together. But here you have... Christ bringing the price, you have the wine at His first miracle, and we have then immediately instituted His Word is to be lived by all the way through. So all three of those elements at the beginning of His ministry, which would lead in His death, and the formal marriage uh, proposal that would come. So, we have those three things at Passover, and then after the Passover you have the days of unleavened bread. Now, he gave himself as a bride price. He was resurrected three days later. <clears throat> but we are instructed to begin putting sin out of our lives. What is putting sin out of your life a picture or type of? 
preparing to marry perfection. It is sin that has caused us not to be qualified to marry such an esteemed one as Christ. So as soon as we accept that bread and wine at Passover, his body and his blood, then we begin putting sin out of our lives so that we might prepare ourselves as the bride. What does a bride do? What did any of them in the Old Testament do as soon as they had made an agreement, yes, I think of marrying you would be a good idea. What do you begin to think? What did you think about, Lisa? You started thinking about getting ready, didn't you? As soon as the question was popped, you forgot about him, well, I'm going to start getting ready for him, I want to get married. What you all girls all did, this was just recent, so I thought I'd make her blush. But no, that's what we do. We begin preparations. Now, he has to marry a virgin. That was very, very important in that culture, in those societies of that day. Today, Protestant culture is, take me as I am, it doesn't matter how I live, uh, and that's what we expect in terms of marriage as well. Fornication before marriage is accepted. It's expected. Uh, that's how far we've fallen from what God wanted and from the symbolism and the importance of what these things are. So we have to consider this very seriously uh, in doing this. And didn't Paul tell the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, that I want to present you as chaste virgins to Christ? That's what he expects. Now, they in Corinth had not been that physically by any means. And we reviewed this just recently, and we talked about it there in Zechariah, I mean in Revelation 14.4, about how the 144,000 are virgins, and, uh, and so on. Well, that's what he wants. So, we have to restore that which has been lost. Now, humanly speaking, you can't do that. Once you cross that line, it's all done and over. You can't go back. But we can because of certain special circumstances. And that circumstance is that death has to occur so that virginity can be restored to us, spiritually speaking. He died for our spiritual fornication and adultery, and physical for that matter, so that it might all be blotted out and forgiven, wiped away, and we can start fresh. That's what this is all about. That's why it is so important. But you see, the world has lost sight of that entirely. They don't understand any of this. And therefore, what feels good, do it. Or whatever I want to do, or whatever I'm tempted to do, I just do. That's the way they think. They don't know any better. They have no other way to think. They've gotten away from this Word, which tells you how to live, and then they have gone way out in the left field, and they have no clue about what God is doing here on this earth and why. So they live like they live. But God has called us to something better. And if we have lived like that in the past, He wants us to change it 
so that he can restore that which we have destroyed through spiritual means, through the blood of Christ. So the Days of Unleavened Bread are very, very important in the plan because as soon as we accept the terms, we immediately begin working at living up to them. And we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So it only follows that after Passover would come unleavened bread. It begins the redemption to prepare us to wed, or preparation. <clears throat> and then, after in physical marriage, after the servant came and made a, uh, a beginning contract with the family, he went back. Remember, Abraham's servant went back and uh, told Abraham and Isaac who he had found and what arrangements had been made. And then, as they began that, there was a 50-day wait, remember, from Passover to Pentecost. They also had a waiting period before the formal engagement. Uh, it, it's not like, like today sometimes where you meet somebody and a week later you run off to Las Vegas and get married and it's all done. It's not the way it worked. It was a process that worked out. If you do it that way, it's a whole lot better. What's that song about how uh, I'm married to you, baby, and I don't even know your name? Guy got drunk, met somebody, got out, got married that night, woke up next morning and said, Who are you? The song wound up. She said the same. Who are you? Uh, that's not what God intends. Marriage should not be contracted that quickly. Uh, there needs to be time involved to be sure that everybody is doing what they ought to be doing and properly preparing for what is to come. <clears throat> anyway, they were to wait and tarry there at Jerusalem for 50 days until Pentecost. So, there you had... A formal engagement. You had the, the original signing of the documents, the getting ready. Then you had a formal engagement. That's pictured by Pentecost. You wait a bit. You start putting sin out. You start getting ready. Uh, and then comes the formal engagement. Uh, that's when Christ sent the Comforter. He sent the Helper. The groom came, made the proposal, and went home. Now, Christ did exactly that, did he not? He said he would give us a heart of flesh, that he would write his Holy Spirit in our hearts in Jeremiah 31, 31. So they waited until the Holy Spirit came in, at Pentecost. And then with that help, with that comforter, you could get down to real preparation. Until we have the Holy Spirit of God we can kind of work at being what we ought to be. We can try to do right. But without His direct help, living a true Christian life is impossible. And we need the Spirit of God living in us to do that. So He formally sent the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And there were great signs and wonders on that day. He's going to do it again. 
with the end-time New Testament church to show that the preparations are almost finished. But He's going to send the Spirit. We have the Spirit of God now dwelling in us. But He's going to send it in great power just before the coming day of the Lord, as Joel 2 points out. And just as He did at Acts 2. Because the bride had better be nearly ready. We had better be ready for signs and wonders and miracles. We had better be getting ready for the fireworks that are to be. Because as the wedding gets closer... Excitement grows. Now, Christ left the disciples, didn't He? In John 14, He went back to His Father in heaven, and He said, If I go, I will come again, and I will prepare in My Father's house are many mansions. So, traditionally, after the bridegroom came and visited made the formal uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking here the formal engagement he went back he prepared a place for his new bride to live added on to his father's house or built a separate uh, dwelling place so he'd have a place to bring his bride well Christ left the apostles he told them I'm not going to see you much hereafter I won't speak to you much. He only, the only time I know of was when he came back and taught Paul for three and a half years in the desert. But once he finished talking with them, had come back and visited and Thomas doubted and all that, we don't find him talking with them anymore except that case with Paul. Now that doesn't mean he couldn't and might not here at the end as well. That's very possible. But he said not much, didn't he? So it won't be much, whatever it is, if it is anymore, beyond what has already occurred. So, what do we have? We have a long dry spell between Pentecost and Feast of Trumpets, the long hot summer. And interestingly, it is also a, in the the agricultural world, summer is when the crop grows. It's when the fruit is produced. So he set this Holy Day system up in a way that from planting time in the spring, once a formal engagement is made, you have the long summer of producing fruit or growing and preparing. Now that's a different analogy, but it fits in perfectly with this analogy of marriage. Because the bride is preparing herself and getting ready during that time, awaiting the Feast of Trumpets. That's why right now, The key is not preaching the gospel to the world. The bride has already been called, the the part of her that is to be from this era. Now God is choosing which ones should be an actual part of the bride or the 144,000. Those decisions will have been made by the time the resurrection, pictured by the Feast of Trumpets, occurs. So we're going through this preparation period, getting ourselves ready, while he's getting a place made ready for us in his father's house. Then we come to trumpets, and after the husband-to-be had prepared a place for his bride, then he would come back to her father's house 
Uh, this is traditionally, it didn't always happen exactly this way, but it was the way they more or less had it set up. He would come back to the father's house and take his bride then to the marriage. And that would occur at the paternal father's house, not the maternal father's house. Because the father of the bride was the key figure, not the mother of the bride. Now, did I say the father of the bride? I meant the father of the, the groom was the key figure. Just as our Heavenly Father is the key figure. And the father and the son, the groom-to-be, were the ones who planned and executed the marriage. The bride was basically preparing herself to be ready when that occurred. Our society has that upside down as well. They have everything else upside down. Why not that? We need to get the symbolism straight. From now on, when a young couple decide they want to be married, it should be hopefully the father's house, the father of the groom, and the groom who are in charge of the wedding. It is not the bride and her mother. That is upside down and totally contrary to the Word of God. Now that takes some real gear shifting, I know, because that's the way it's been all this time. But we need to get that right. It is perfectly laid out here between God the Father, His Son, and we who are to be the bride. What is our part? Are we up in heaven planning the wedding feast? Are we up in heaven selecting gowns? Are we up in heaven making all the arrangements? No. The Father and the Son are making all those arrangements. All we're doing is down here getting prepared or dressed for the wedding. And the preparation for the wedding is holiness and righteousness pictured by white garments. And it is not right for somebody getting married who has been fornicating to wear white garments to their wedding. White garments represent cleanliness and righteousness. And we are to become chaste virgins before Christ, before we qualify to marry Him. All this just-as-I-am theology that's around the world today will not work, and those people will not be in the kingdom of God and be the bride of Christ. It won't happen. Now, there is a place for them later on. But let's understand why purity is so important. Christ is pure. His Father is pure. And He wants His bride to be that way. And He won't marry anybody that's not. That's why He tells all seven churches, He that overcomes will I grant to sit with me on my throne, to wear white at the wedding. That's one of the promises. Because she has overcome and changed and made herself ready and has become a spiritual virgin.
Now, anyone who was married in this life and was not in that state, perhaps that makes you feel really bad. Those of you who are fornicating or thinking of fornicating now, it might catch your attention, I don't know. Let's understand, I'm not trying to put anybody down because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God at some time and in some way in our lives, whether in these particular ways or not. And we all have to come under the price of the groom, the blood that he shed to make us pure and clean and white again. So it does not matter what has happened in the past. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty here. I am trying to educate us on the way things should be and how we should live and act in order to live out the symbolism that God has given in marriage of the marriage of the Lamb. And why it is so important then that we do it the right way, because it does picture that. And even if we are already married and we come into the church, we have Ephesians 5 to tell us what the relationship of a husband and wife ought to be, because that pictures the marriage of Christ Himself. So it's not just the preparation for the marriage that's important, but it's how we conduct the marriage itself. Now that's why He puts us through trials, troubles, tribulations, tests, difficulties of all kinds while we're on this earth to test us, to check our hearts, to check our minds, to check whether or not we will be those who will live forever according to every word of God. Satan was a created being. And he turned in pride and vanity and self-determination, self-direction and self-centeredness to do what he wanted to do, what felt good, looked good to him. And he became a very wretched, abominable, miserable being who will live out his life in absolute misery and shame. God does not want that to happen again. So before he lets you and me be a part of the bride of Christ, he will try us, he will test us, he has promised us affliction and misery and pain now so that he might check our hearts and know what he has. So that if we are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye on trumpets, he knows we will forever follow his ways. That's what he's doing. That's why we suffer now. Could he take it all away? Yes, he could. But he won't. On purpose. Because every time we have trouble, it's a test of our heart. And then he says, when we are changed, he will take away all tears, all pain, all sorrow. Any negative emotion will go away and stay away forevermore. I cannot imagine that. But he says it, and I believe it. So there is a method, not to his madness, 
but to His purpose and what He's working out with you and me. So what is Feast of Trumpets? It is the acceptance of the bride. She has spent the time since she received the Holy Spirit and the formal betrothal, preparing herself, working at herself, overcoming, changing, and growing. And then, once all 144,000 have been sealed, he said, yes, I want this one, this one, this one, and this one to be my bride. And it includes all those from the Old Testament, the early New Testament, and today, a composite total of 144,000. And they will be resurrected in a moment in the twinkling of an eye with a shout of the archangel. Now, that is when he comes for his bride. And even in ancient marriages in Israel, they sent out someone, or no, they sent two witnesses out to announce the arrival of the bridegroom. They were to cry, to shout, they were to precede him, and then he was to come. Now, isn't that the case today? Revelation 11 indicates he will send two to cry aloud, to spare not, to announce, to let everybody know that he is coming. And for three and a half years, they will proclaim to the world that Christ is coming. They had better repent and get ready. They had better live as God would have them live, or all hell is going to break loose. And they will die in the streets of Jerusalem and lie there for three and a half days. And at the end of that three and a half days, all that they had prophesied, warned about, and told of the bridegroom and his return will suddenly be fulfilled. And he will be there. And they will rise, and the dead will rise, and you who, are, who remain will also rise to meet Christ in the air. And so shall we ever be with him. So it was laid out in ancient marriage customs, and it's right here again in the whole layout of the plan of God, and it fits perfectly with the holy days. So trumpets... Pictures his acceptance. He gathers her up and takes her home. <clears throat> takes her to his father's house. We will rise, meet him in the air, and immediately we will go back to the father's throne. And there, there will be a marriage supper. And the symbolism there in Luke 14 is that if we don't come dressed, prepared, and ready we would be cast out. Now, I think that once the 144,000 are sealed and the resurrection occurs, that's it. But the, in Luke 14, it's talking about the whole marriage process, not just once the feast is there. It's the whole process that Luke 14 is covering. A man prepares a wedding for his son, and here again you have the symbolism of the father doing it. John 6, 44, no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him, not of Christ. It was an arranged marriage. The Father is the one who arranged for you and me to be here today, not Christ himself. Now, he begins to work with those that his Father has chosen as the bride. This again goes 
way against our modern American culture. But it is the way it was done, and it's the way it's done in Scripture, the way the Father and the Son prepare a bride for the Son of God. So, bear that in mind. You know, when we're young, we want to pick our own wife. We want to pick our own husband. And a lot of times we do a really lousy job of it. And a lot of times it doesn't work. And we don't want to listen to our parents, do we? If they say, that one's no good. Oh, yes, he is, or yes, she is. Don't want to listen to our parents. What do they know? I'm the one with the feelings. Maybe before the feelings get that deep, when you have some friends and you're thinking possibly of so-and-so, maybe you ought to talk it over with your parents. Now, what do you think of this person? He's been around here a few times, or she's been around. What, what do you see here? you see a punk rocker, or do you see an upright human being? Do you see a slut, or do you see a girl of high character? What do you see? Do you see a rebellious person who's going to live their life forever fighting society? Or do you see someone who is going to be an upstanding citizen? You know, these things could be talked about pragmatically before the heart completely takes over. Because once that happens, they ain't going to listen to nobody, are they? Maybe the parents, you know, and, and, and the kids don't like it when the parents say, well, you know, so-and-so is pretty nice. You know, don't you get to know that one better? Boy, the neck stiffens right away. That's not the attitudes they had back then. They had not been educated in our modern ways. Did you see Isaac say, hey, Dad, I want to go myself. Come on now. No. Servant went. That's the way it worked out. They were happy once it was all done. You know, it's, it's bigger than just you are. How many people did most of us consider marrying before we got married? I had a high, whole high school full of girls, and I had a whole college full of girls. I looked at a lot of them as, hmm, I don't know, maybe, whatever. Some of them glom on to someone when they're 13 or 14, and then they go steady from then on, and they never learn about other people. Their, their choice is suddenly limited by a feeling. So they never get to know different personalities and different types and so on. And they, don't have, they, they, they rob themselves of the opportunity to pick from a wider range of people. They hone in too soon. And they're doing themselves a disservice. Now, didn't God Himself say, Many are called to be a bride of My Son, few are chosen. God considered six billion people here on the earth, here at the end. And out of that, He chose roughly 150, 200,000, if you consider the ones that died over the years in the church. And out of those many that he's considering for his son, he's going to choose just the right number and get just the right ones for it. 
And he's going to take mostly the weak and base of the world who have been anything but what they ought to have been, and he's going to turn them into chaste virgins. God is big. He is powerful. But he himself ponders the heart. He watches our doings to see whether we're what he wants to be the bride of his son. So he didn't limit it, did he? And not limiting it, it gave you and me a chance. So, as soon as we're resurrected, we go back with him to his throne. Jude talks about how we'll ever be with the Lord. And uh, we'll follow him wherever he goes. He, he won't go back or come down here without us from that point on. So he goes back, and no father who has done all that the Father in heaven has done is going to miss the marriage of his son. So we'll go back. There are scriptures which indicate it. I, uh, I think I may have covered some of those before. We've done it in the past. It's in that series on how exclusive is the church. But we go immediately to the Father's throne where he has prepared a place for us. We are on the sea of glass there. I think that's Revelation 4, somewhere right in there. And there's where the wedding takes place. And according to Old Testament Scripture, once a man married a wife, he didn't have to work for a year, and he didn't go to war for a year. He stayed there and cheered up his wife. They established the marriage relationship during that first year. They came to know each other better. They became very intimate, obviously, in that year. And knew each other very well because they were establishing something that would last for life. And God is establishing something with us that will last for life. And if we're going to start a family together, that bonding needs to be there. So we can bond with Him now, but it's kind of hit or miss, isn't it? Sometimes your prayers seem to be heard. Sometimes they seem to be answered. Sometimes not so much. We're not as close to our bridegroom as we need to be. So we'll have a year to learn more about our function, how we'll operate, how to be the wife of God. Uh, that's a big concept. And then He will come back and it says we'll come back with His saints there again in Jude to take over the earth. He'll come with His vesture dipped in blood and so on. Uh, and those with Him wearing white, the, the uh, attire of saints. He'll take over the rulership of the earth. But atonement itself is the wedding ceremony. Now, here we are fasting, and this picture is a wedding ceremony and celebration, a marriage supper. How does that fit? Well, the bridegroom isn't here. This is symbolism. He says, why don't your, they said, why don't your disciples fast? He says, they fast when I'm not here. When I come back, they won't fast anymore. So, in symbolism now, the fasting we are doing this very day is mourning 
that our bridegroom is not here. We can't be with him. You know how it is before you get married and how you want to be with him every second? We should desire to be with Christ every second. Every thought into the captivity of Christ. And when we are not with Him, it is mournful and sad. So this day is to afflict our souls and mourn that He is not here. He says, when I return, my disciples won't fast. When He returns and takes us up to His Father's throne, He says, I will drink wine anew with you in the kingdom. We'll have a wedding supper. So the Day of Atonement will change from a morning fasting time to a feasting, wine-drinking time. And that's what was pictured at the beginning with Christ's blood being poured out, with the flask of wine to concrete the proposal of marriage, in Cana of Galilee, and again in the kingdom of God. So our fasting will turn to feasting. Now that's what he says about the fast of Zechariah 7 and 8, isn't it? That these fasts will turn to feasts of joy. Because we'll be with the bridegroom from then and forevermore. Now fasting does something for us at the same time, because Day of Atonement, or at one mint, means you come together as one. Now Christ said He wanted us to be one as He and the Father were one there in John 17. So He wants us to become one with Him, and this day pictures becoming at one with Christ. Not two anymore, not Him being gone, but He comes back and we are joined in marriage. It pictures the consummation of the marriage. It pictures, in a human sense, the sexual part of that. Because that is how a marriage is consummated. It is through sex that God has made a man and a woman to come together and bind themselves emotionally in ways that cannot be done in any other part of the relationship. Even when they're arguing or fighting and estranged, that helps draw them back together to oneness again. That is how it was designed. That's why it should be kept sacrosanct before marriage and during marriage. Because it pictures the oneness with Christ. And that is when we become truly at one with Him, when we are actually married. It isn't at the resurrection. That's just when we're accepted and jump in the limo to go to the marriage. It is atonement where the marriage actually occurs. And then you are together forevermore. In the closest possible relationship any beings can have on earth or in heaven. Marriage is very, very important. And it has such deep meaning.
Now, here's something the church did not understand. We had that cockamamie idea based on a few scriptures that were out of context that uh, Christ would return and we'd somehow have a wedding in the clouds, I guess, and then come down and rule on the earth for a thousand years. Then you'd have the great white throne judgment a hundred years afterward. And then the earth would be burned to a crisp, totally recreated, and the Father and Son would come down and have a new heaven and a new earth. That is not supported by Scripture whatsoever. But Scripture does support that once we have the wedding and the honeymoon is over, the day of the Lord, remember Matthew 24 says that the day of the Lord comes immediately after the tribulation of those days. The day of the Lord is one year long. So the honeymoon time is when the seven last plagues during the day of the Lord occur uh, after the resurrection at Trumpets. And then, uh, we come back with Christ, finish subduing the earth and the new heavens and the new earth with the Father, the Son, and the Bride come down from heaven. I'm not sure but what Christ may come three times in this whole thing. It just occurred to me this morning, I've, I've got to think it through. But He comes first, we rise to meet Him in the air, and we go back for the marriage. Uh, at the end of that day of the Lord, it says He comes back with His sword and on a, on a horse to make war. And those who are coming with Him are righteous. Remember, we'll always be with Him wherever He goes. He subdues the earth. But the picture there in Revelation 19-21 through 21 is of the bride coming down as a heavenly city, 144,000, and they're coming in righteousness, and the Father and the Son with them. So it may be He comes and takes us away, comes back down at the end of the day of the Lord and finishes subduing the earth, goes right back and brings His Father, the kingdom, the holy city, and His bride with Him. And reigns a thousand years. Now that one needs to be thought through a little more and see if all the Scriptures fit, but... I'm beginning to think that may be what we're talking about. There's, never, there's nothing in the Scripture ever says He's only coming once, is there? You never read that. We just pictured it that way. That He would come down and all this stuff would happen at once. But Isaiah 65 and 66 very clearly show that during the new heavens and new earth, there will be human beings doing sacrifices, having babies, and all of that stuff. After it says, I create a new heaven and a new earth in Isaiah 65. And it talks about human beings, all flesh coming before him at the end of Isaiah 66 to give offerings during the new heavens and the new earth. In Isaiah 24, which Peter quoted in 2 Peter 3.18 about the heavens being dissolved and all those things and in turmoil and burned with fire, Paul, uh, Peter was quoting directly from Isaiah 24, which talks about the earth being upset and burned and so on and dissolved, and few men left, and the inhabitants thereof it talks about. So our idea of all mankind being burned up, and then a new heaven and a new earth being created, was wrong. So, 
Revelation 21 talks about the bride, the Lamb's wife, coming down as New Jerusalem. And the Father and the Son being the temple of it. No temple there, no light. They're the light and the temple. The Father and the Son. And that's at the beginning of the millennium. That's when the new heavens and new earth come. Now, what does the Feast of Tabernacles then picture in terms of the family? Or of marriage? I guess I let the cat out of the bag. Once the marriage is complete, once the honeymoon is done... We have some pregnant expectations, and that is of children. The millennium pictures a time when we will rule on the earth with Christ for a thousand years, Revelation 5.10. So, by creation, God created children for himself, didn't he? And there have been millions and billions of people that have been born on this earth since. But they are not children of God in the fullest sense of the word. They are created beings, and in that sense are His children. But there are different types of children. Now, He has offered you and me to be children of God in a different way at this time than He's offered to anyone else. He's offered us as spiritual children to be changed into a wife at His coming and at atonement. But these created children who have been down here are not, in the greatest sense of the word by any means, children of God. They're children of the devil. He says so. They worship they know not what. They think they worship God and they're worshiping Satan. So at that time, Satan will be bound a thousand years and he will invite the peoples of the earth to be his family, to adopt them as true children of God, to graft them in, if you will, into the family of God. Now, it is only an adoption at that point, because they will still be physical. But Christ and His bride will then have children. About a hundred million, I think, according to Daniel, to start with. That's, uh, they're not taking growth hormones, I mean birth hormones, that's just the amount, the amount that lived through. And they will offer them repentance, They will offer them opportunity to be true children as part of the family. They will only be candidates at first as physical human beings, but they will be offered the tree of life if they will follow through. At the end of the millennium, remember, he will lose Satan for a short time, and he will at that time determine once and for all if they are to be changed into spirit beings and become spiritual members of the family, or whether they will die and go into the lake of fire. So a final determination for them will be made at that time. There's nothing that says they'll live a hundred years during the millennium, necessarily. There's nothing that says the last great day is a hundred years. That's a misuse of Isaiah 65. I don't know how long the last great day is. A day in Scripture can picture different things. A day can be as a year, it can be as a thousand years. 
Uh, is there any place that says it could be a hundred years? There might be. I don't remember it offhand. But Isaiah 65 was a misuse of that because it's talking of the new heavens and new earth, the beginning of the millennium. People may only live a hundred years during the millennium based on that. That's a possibility. But it does not give the timing of the last great day. But God has to finish the plan. So the last great day is attached to the feast because not everyone was offered eternal life during the first 6,000 years. And only those who lived through the end time horrors uh, populate the millennium, they and their children, through a thousand years. But what about all those people from Adam until Christ returned who died on this earth and never had a chance? That's what the last great day is all about because they will be resurrected again as physical human beings, be taught the truth, and again as humans be offered greater sonship than they had as created sons and as resurrected still physical sons. They'll be given the same covenant, the same opportunity that we had, that those in the millennium had, they will then be given. They will be given time to prove whether or not they are to be a part of the kingdom of God. And at the time that they have then been judged for good or for evil, and most will be for good, God is a father and he is a successful father. He is not operating out of desperation trying to beat the devil. Most people who ever lived on the face of the earth are going to be in the kingdom of God, whether as the bride or later as the children who are offered as members of the family later on. And he will be successful. He is a creator father. Christ himself set the example. He said, Father, I haven't lost any except the one that we set up ahead of time. We knew there would be a betrayer, and that's the only one I lost, and that was planned ahead of time. I have been successful, Father. Now, to the Father in heaven, that was a good report, because he succeeded there, and he will succeed again, because he is the one in charge under the Father of carrying out this whole thing. I want to add a few points here in wrapping this up, because the whole feast cycle is pictured by the marriage cycle and family cycle and where it goes. Now this we did never understand entirely, and we couldn't have because we didn't understand end time events and when and what trumpets and atonement and the feast really pictured. With that in mind, it completes the whole marriage picture from the glimmer in a young man's eye until the family is complete and grown. And maybe then it will be extended so that others in the future can be part of that family. He doesn't tell us. But he says of his kingdom and its increase, there is no end. So what he has planned beyond the great white throne judgment, I do not know. Galatians 4.22 talks about the two sons, and there's an allegory there of the two marriage covenants. Uh, the first one did not work out too well, but uh, 
through Isaac it did. And he says that Jerusalem above is free and is the mother of us all. So the old covenant was temporary. And because of the sin of the wife, that marriage was set aside. Now this time, he has given his Holy Spirit. He has written it in our hearts. And he does not want failure. He wants us to succeed. He's been through failure not because of himself and his son. He has been through, through failure because of the weakness of the bride. And he recognized that she did not have all she needed to be what she ought to be. So in the second one, he sent his Holy Spirit to give us help, to give us comfort, to give us strength, to see that we make it that we hold up our part of the bargain. He expects much more of us now than he expected of Israel then. He did not really ever offer them eternal life, did he? He offered them a good physical life if they would obey his rules. But he said that this new covenant is based on better promises. This time he's promised his wife a whole lot more than he promised the first one. His mentality is this. If I sweeten the pot enough, if I give better gifts, if I give her more opportunity, maybe she will succeed where they fail. So he's up the ante, brethren. He's offered us not just a good life on earth. And in fact, he has not even offered us as much as he did them a good life on this earth. He's promised us trial, trouble, tribulation, and difficulty. He said even in this life also he would give us blessing. And, and we have been blessed. But he has not taken away all those negative things yet. Because even though he has given better promises, though he has given the gift of his Spirit, though he has given us greater opportunity and closer oversight, he knows we're still human. And he knows that we need a kick in the pants. He knows we need trials and troubles to help keep us on the right path. And that's why we still have affliction in this life. Now, I do believe that right here at the end, He is going to give a select remnant everything they could want. And the trials and the troubles of this life are essentially going to be set aside. He's going to give us health and wealth. He's going to give us food that is good food. He's going to give us protection, security. And He's going to set us as a light on a hill for the whole world to see that this is the part of my bride that is alive and remains here at the end. And this is how you ought to live so you could be what God ultimately wants you to be. And he will send those ahead of him to announce his coming and what ought to be, and they will reject it. 
and they will have to be, for the most part, killed. To humble them so that when they are resurrected in the white throne judgment, they'll be ready to listen. Because they won't be this time around. The bridegroom is coming. Prepare yourselves. Get ready. He's given us greater opportunity and greater gifts than He ever gave anyone in the past, save Abraham and the few, David and some from Hebrews 11, that were offered this. But He's extended to us now the tree of life. We have opportunity at it. There were a couple of points I wanted to make here. I don't want to... I've already talked about some of the things I wrote down here. I did want to make a comment about Malachi 4, for one thing. It says that he is about to return as a son of righteousness. And he is pictured by the sun. His face shines like the sun. And he has guaranteed us that the sun will come up and the sun will go down throughout this whole thing. Psalm 19.1 is where I'm wanting to turn back to my I wouldn't fall on. I'm going to go back and read that to you. I was trying to tell the story without remembering where the scripture was. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament show his handiwork. Now, this handiwork could be a pretty broad definition. His handiwork could be the heavens that we look up and see, the planets. It could also be everything that He has created upon this planet. And He says that we know Him, in Romans 1, by the things that He has created, both out in space and here. Day unto day utters speech, and night to night shows knowledge. He's saying here that the glory of God and His handiwork is seen day by day, by daytime and at nighttime. That we are to see the glory of God and what we witness on a daily basis. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. They are there as a mute or a mute testimony to God's greatness and His creativity. He is spoken of in every language on earth. There is, in the breasts of men and women everywhere, in every society and culture, some expectation of life after this one. Now, they take some really weird mutations because Satan is in charge of them, but that is still within us, wherever we may be in some form or fashion. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tabernacle for the sun. So that the sun is part of the tabernacle of God, which is as a bridegroom coming out of His chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. Now He's saying here that all the creation around us is a testimony to the glory of God, it is a daily testimony that it is throughout the world and mankind and that it is pictured as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. 
So what God has set in motion here by day and by night is set there as a remembrance for you and me on a day-to-day basis. Every morning that sun comes up, it pictures the bridegroom coming out of his chamber to accept us as the bride of Christ. Remember Lamentations where it says that every day we have a new opportunity, a new lease on life, I can't say the exact words. I think it's in chapter 2, maybe 3. He gives us a fresh beginning every day, according to Lamentations. And here he says, every day that sun comes up, it pictures you and I marrying Christ at his return. The bridegroom coming out of his chamber to collect his bride. I never thought of it that way before. How badly does our Father and His Son want us to be there as the Bride of Christ at the wedding supper? If only we will prepare ourselves and put on wedding garments and be righteous and holy so that we can be presented as chaste virgins to Christ to marry Him to live with Him throughout all eternity. And He gave us a daily reminder that as that sun comes up, do not forget your purpose. I want you there. And when that sun comes up, He's telling you that every day. He must want you there. He wants you to be at one with His Son And be at one, even as he and the Son are one with us. And to live together happily ever after.